Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Pastor Lenny, and my pronouns are he, him, John. In this episode, we'll discuss Palm Passion Sunday, which this year falls on March 28th. Just one content notification for you this episode. We talk about experiences with racism and oppression without much detail throughout the episode. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Today, for our deep dive, we are delighted to have our colleague, the Reverend Lenny Duncan, with us. Lenny was born on 62nd and Race in West Philly and now lives in the Pacific Northwest as a writer, speaker, preacher, thinker, and agitator who centers most of his theological work in the task of dismantling white supremacy in the Republic. Lenny is just another black queer writer trying to survive America who loves hip-hop, tattoos, Jesus, liberation, and most likely you. Reverend Lenny seemed like an excellent choice for Palm and Passion Sunday, as he's very familiar with how popular opinion on a religious leader speaking for justice can go from effusive praise to being ready to murder them in the course of a week. Pastor Lenny, how is Palm Passion Sunday speaking to you in 2021? You know, it's it's an interesting thing. One thing, I think it's because I have so much LC. You know, I was raised by liturgy queens in the LCA on the East Coast. That's how I was raised in the mm-hmm. church. And awesome. so, yeah. And so this Palm Passion Sunday Frankenstein bullshit really pisses me off because it's like, dude, just make your people come in on Friday. Like they're at home now. Most of them, you could do a virtual Good Friday. You don't have to do this monstrous thing because you just assume your people are lazy. My assumption is, is that we're just not inspiring them enough to make them want to come in all Holy Week. Mm. Right. And 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 I'm not saying us as leaders. I'm saying the church. The church has lost that 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 inspiration where people would be like, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, people would take the week off for Holy Week so they could really lean into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened to those folks? Right. They all just didn't retire. Right. Like they moved on to other places and did other things. So in that sense, I always struggle with Palm Passion Sunday. What I will say about Palm Sunday is it's probably one of my favorite holidays, right? I mean, we really get the political ideology of Christ because there's theological implications to the incarnation. Just the existence of Christ changes the universe. Mm -hmm. We, We don't have to argue that, right? That's been argued for thousands of years. Sure. But what Palm Sunday invites us into is 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 the political, economic and social ramifications of the incarnation. And and we really see who I love, which is the sarcastic Jesus. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's everything he's saying is so sarcastic. And, 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 and Palm Sunday is my favorite fuck you to the state I've ever read. I mean, because it is. Mm-hmm. It's a total yeah. fuck you to the state. You're going down because you don't, you know, like, because, you know, Christ is like saying, like, I represent a God who steps into human history for the express purpose of human salvation. And that is called liberation by people the world's over or it's experienced as liberation. Right. You know, like Christ knows who's got, you know, Christ's back or his back. But I don't know. And then we'll get into it later. But, yeah, that, that that's what I love about Palm Sunday, um, because it really prepares us for the existential crisis of the fact that who we are at our core is that we would murder love. Mm. Wow. But you have to know that our very lives depended on love in that moment. It's not just that we murdered love. Love was our only hope 
and we turned it over to death. And that is why I like to separate the days and really, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough out of me. That's enough out of me. You invite one cis man to the show in 20 <laughs> minutes at a time. Sorry. You're good. Absolutely. What you're talking about is part of actually how we how we do Holy Week on the podcast is to do the Palm Gospel and then to do just the amount of the Passion that happens before the Last Supper. And so we get right. into it without – and that, like, if I were preaching, like, I would read the Mark 11 at the beginning of the service, read Isaiah and Philippians and preach and then save Mark 14, which is our last one. For the very end of the service and just leave people in this like ominous. Yeah. This is where we're headed, folks. Because because it is that. I, like it, it needs more separation. Well, it's theater. Mm-hmm. Right. Liturgy is right. Liturgy is theater. We are recounting a sacred story in the hopes of recounting that sacred story. It creates some sort of kingdom or, or, or realm of God. Right. And that we invite this Christ energy into the world to prepare for its coming, right? Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be the hope. Yeah. Right? But when we, when we don't when we take out the sacred drama of the divine, I mean, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a comedy, it all depends on your perspective after 2020. <laughs> but, you know, the the it, when we take that out, when we take the divine drama out of it, ugh, we leave people in a really bad place. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why they're marching on the fucking capital. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great story and you have to tell it well. Yep. Well, and speaking of, yeah, absolutely. as you were talking about, Lenny, there's been a push, particularly in more recent years, toward understanding the Palm Sunday procession in particular as a protest against the Roman occupation. And you talked about this as being a like an F you to the government. And the way that I learned about it was the juxtaposition of Jesus coming in on a cult while from the other side. Pontius Pilate is coming in with the full Roman military. It's a street theater type of thing in the style of Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Absolutely. Right, to make fun of all of that pomp and circumstance. Yeah, I'm curious how, if those are the connections that you're making also, like what is that today? What is the street theater we're called to today? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about that idea and this is like such the perfect podcast to talk about. It's this thing I'm working on called the reincarnation theater, but like where, where we act out sacred uh, tragedies and, and, and comedies and, and, and dramedies and, you know, of, of different cosmologies and stuff. It's like a thing I'm working on in the back of my head for like maybe in a year or two when I have a little bit more money and I can invest in people who want to do this stuff. Right. And not for performance and not for profit, but just to do it. So like, what's it like to invest a thousand dollars in the middle of nowhere, like somewhere and just be like, Hey, you guys are going to do this performance on this corner and it's going to be part of this weird thing. And then you're all going to walk away. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like that kind of stuff. But it is in that spirit. I mean, what Christ is doing, and, and, and look, people can feel how they want to feel about this. You know, we started the podcast before we started recording this episode talking about why I'm a heretic, right? But so let's just put that on the table. This might be heretical for some of you, but I happen to believe in an intelligent Jesus Christ. I know it's super <laughs> hard for some people to grasp that Jesus Christ knew the political, social, and psychological ramifications of everything he did. I know Only you, pastor, think like that. Only you are smart enough to think about 
the ramifications of what you say in your community and how that might affect the local politics. Of course, the savior of the fucking universe didn't think like that. So, you know, <laughs> we make some baseline assumptions about Christ that, that I just do away with. Right. And some, so it's hard to unpack those, but I believe in an intelligent Jesus Christ mm-hmm. who knew exactly what he was doing. I also think that he knew the Isaiah prophecy. And I think it was a you not only to the state, but to the temple. And so he took pieces of the Isaiah prophecy. Right. And, and he wanted to see if it was real, too. Right. He sent one of his disciples to test the spirit. Right. He didn't go do it himself. The famous person. Because that would be the G move. The G move would be like, yo, I need the cult. About to go do the thing we've been waiting for for thousands of years. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? That'd be like the, the gangster move. No. He tested the spirit. He sent one of his disciples. He sent someone with nowhere near his power, right? Or his recognition, right? Mm-hmm. He knew who he was. He tested the spirit, but yet he still used pieces of the Isaiah prophecy to mock the fact that these religious leaders were probably on the other side of town welcoming their oppressor. Mm, yeah. You got to remember that Caiaphas and the rest of the temple leaders, they were probably not only there to pay homage to or, or homage to, to, to Pilate, but they also probably were forced to be there. You know, yeah. and Caiaphas was in a really delicate political situation. You know, here was someone who was going to burn down the entire system that him and the rest of the priests had built as an institution to protect Israel, right? Mm -hmm. To avoid a third exile, right? You know, we beat up on Caiaphas and the religious leaders so much, but they're all in the conference of bishops. I mean, all of them, every character, right? And, and, and you would, and you would be one of those characters if you joined the conference of bishops. I would be one of those characters if I joined, I would be Caiaphas within a month. I'd say, oh, one roster leader isn't worth the entire church. Right. And so what I love about what Jesus is doing is that he's he's talking about the fallen state of anything in man trying to capture the divine temple systems, church systems that's about to be established, because I have to believe he knew the consequences of everything that was going to happen, at least by Palm Sunday. Yeah. Right. At least by the procession, he was like, I am. And he is signaling. Right. And so I think the interesting thing about Palm Passion Sunday is that it didn't have to go this way. In the same way that Emmett Till didn't have to be killed, Jesus didn't have to be killed. It's a reflection of who we are as people, not a reflection of the divine. Yeah. And I really think the lesson is the next time the divine touches us and encounters us, maybe we don't have to rip it to shreds to realize it loves us. Right. So optimistic. (laughs) So, yeah. Long answer, long rambly answer. Perfect. I do think that that's like that aspect of what is so frequently, particularly in Holy Week, and when we don't dive into it deeply enough, the message that comes from Holy Week is blame the Jewish people and yep. check. We're Lutheran. We're Lutheran, so let's just put let's just put that on the table. Everything we do is draped draped in Mm anti-semitism you can say it's not but but it is yeah so that's what holy week becomes it becomes blame the jewish people and also god required it of jesus and it's like actually neither of those things are accurate like it is caiaphas and annas and all of them are in this like precarious position where right somebody the other week posted on facebook 
a thing that was like, you always have a choice, but you don't always have a good choice, right? They didn't yep. have a good choice. Yep. They were stuck no, in like, they, how do you, how do you do harm reduction for an entire people who have been through exile again and again? Yeah. And, and the oppressor sitting there mm-hmm. and it's the day of the biggest festival and another Jack. There was just a guy named Jesus 20 years ago did this 20, you know what I mean? And showed up. Yeah. There, there were rebels in the hills. There were people who were actively murdering Roman soldiers in the streets to, to raise, you know, the tension levels. I mean, it was not that different than the world we find ourselves in today. Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing that people really miss is that the world's not that different from the world of Jesus. We just have a lot more convenience. And that is about it. And we talk about religion a lot less. Yes, we don't we don't discuss the principles of religion, which I actually think is a good thing. It it gave it space for something new to be born. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot too. Lenny, recently you started a fund for retired African descent rostered leaders in the ELCA, which is the denomination that all three of us are rostered in. And you've intentionally phrased it as being an act of reparation. So this got you a wide variety of reactions from across our denomination and the larger church. Mm. And I can't help thinking about the critiques of the unnamed woman who anoints Jesus with costly ointment in our second gospel reading. So in the one that leads towards Mm. the passion from today. And I'm curious what you think if, if you notice those or yeah. Well, Emily, I just want to say that it's so funny. Uh, either you do your research or like the spirit is really, you know, in touch. I really do believe reparations can be the sweet, fragrant nard mm-hmm. broken over a, a the cracked feet, the cracked, worn brown feet of a savior that has clearly been saying, I can't breathe. Yeah. Right. A savior who has been saying, you know, it started with COVID. Right. And it's all about it's all been about the breath of life. All 2020 was about the breath of life. Right. And then we we the, it was the battle for the breath of life. It was covid. Then it was George Floyd. Then it was the wildfires. Then it was fires all across the world. Right. And then it was covid again. And then and, and yeah. then it, and, and then it was, you know, we saw in the state, you know, we saw in the election, like who has the right to decide who has the breath of life mm-hmm. in this country. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when that decision was made, the state had to decide, well, do we still give the people that decision? And there was a moment there where we weren't sure if the state was going to allow the people the privilege it has allowed us in this republic to make that decision in the limited capacity in ways that we can. So in that sense, if we know that black peoples in this country are the canary in the coal mine for freedom and liberation, mm-hmm. we just are. What they do to us in the daylight, they'll do to you in the dark. And we know the sacrifices that black people are going to continue to make in this country. We know that another unarmed young black man will be murdered by police in the next few weeks, next couple of months. We know this. This is a fact now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know that the criminal justice system is grossly, grossly in- inequitable and that it is a never ending system of uh, poverty and oppression. We-, we know this. This is facts now at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no the only people who are arguing are the people who don't deal in facts anymore. And that's OK. Yeah. And that's what reparations are. They are they, they are acknowledging the continued blood sacrifice that white America and particularly white Protestants demand out of black Americans. 
They demand it out of us. And, uh, you know, that reparations thing, people thought I lost my fucking mind. You know, why would he ruin his career this way? One of my peers, African-American peer, described me as a pariah because of this. I mean, you know, and, and they weren't saying it to be mean. They were just being real. Like, dude made himself a pariah, right? Like, and, and it's funny to me. Like, all I've ever been is a kid with a backpack and a Twitter account, you know? Um, even at 42, that's all I am. And, like, no one even stopped to think long enough. Like, why is this one person doing it? Why hasn't the church ever led this effort? Why hasn't, uh, you know, Elizabeth Eaton ever talked about reparations publicly? Mm-hmm. Ever. Yeah. Unless she's pressed on it. Why hasn't anyone done it? And, and, and they'll say it's because for years we've been working on this. We're, we're with you and all that stuff. But if you're with me, why wasn't George Floyd enough for you? Why wasn't Sandra Bland enough for you? Why wasn't Philando Castile enough for you? Why wasn't Michael Brown enough for you? Why wasn't Trayvon Martin enough for you? Why have we, why, why has Ahmaud Aubrey not been enough for you? Why haven't the young men like uh, Genoa Donald who've been murdered in my parish and I still haven't received a phone call from our presiding bishop? Mm-hmm. Two young men have been Kevin Peterson murdered in my parish. Not even a phone call from anyone at Higgins Road. But they're working on reparations. Here's the thing. It's not their fault. I'm not even really angry with them. I'm just infuriated by the situation. The truth is, is that we as a church and as the whitest church in America need to be the first ones to recognize exactly the point in the story you're pointing at. They're talking that bullshit. Lenny, if you do this, you'll take away money from the poor. That's exactly what Judas said. Mm-hmm. Lenny, if you do this, you're going to take away money from other, you know, important initiatives and other BIPOC peoples within the church. And do you know why they say that? Because white supremacy is based on a theology of, of scarcity. And I don't believe in it. I believe in the theology of abundance. I don't believe that you are broken. I believe that you are the Imagio Dei. And I'm coming from a completely different place than those folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? There, there, there's more than enough for everyone out here. For them to act like there isn't, it's, it's just bullshit. You want to tell me, don't don't read me your church's theological document. Show me its budget, and I'll tell you what it really believes. And I can tell you, if you look at the ELCA's budget, we believe that the problem is everywhere but in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're the worldwide problem. We are the exporters of white supremacy, hatred, oppression, the military-industrial complex, and capitalism. It's us. Mm-hmm. The phone calls are coming from inside the house and they want to act like building wells around the world is going to solve it. And I think about that, like the amount of energy that I saw around the reparations fund and around actually being right. Like there's for so many white people, there's this point at which they're like, OK, I need to read all the things and I have no idea how to act. Right. And it's mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of work internally and communally to push to the next thing and the reparations fund was this really beautiful like here is a step here is a way to move from reading all the books to doing something and people are doing it yeah in the midst of a really hard time Mm -hmm. right like my, my two things i always say are like you're either waging peace or building peace and you know which stage your community is in right like your community is either building peace which means you're reading books Black person got murdered and you're reading books. And that's good. That's the education stage, right? Because here's how you know. 
When George Floyd died, either your people were on the streets already and they said, Pastor, where are you? Or you got to church that Sunday and they said, Pastor, what do we do? Hmm. If they said, what do we do? You're in the building peace stage. It's time to educate them. You are in the education. Yes, you have to do the book club. Yes, that sucks. I'm I'm sorry that the seminary trained you for a church that doesn't exist. But now you got to bring all your people up to speed. Don't get mad at me that the bishop scammed your ass. You know what I mean? But they scammed you. They taught you about this progressive theology that does not exist in the church. Right? So when George Floyd died, either your people knew what to do or had no clue. If, if they had no clue, you do the education stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? So that way, when the next young person is murdered by the police, you know exactly what you're going to do. You're waging peace then. They already have the education. They've already done the nonviolent resistance training. They already know who are the emergency contacts at the church. The church nurse is already out there marching with them in case someone gets tear gas. You guys already have a fund put up for bulletproof vests for your roster leaders or for black peoples who are like leading the way, right? You're already doing that stuff because you've already, you've heard of it. It doesn't seem shocking, right? Mm-hmm. That suddenly your your sanctuary is like a theater of war. But if your congregation is stuck arguing with you about possibly not using male pronouns for God, then you're going to have some stuff yeah, to do. Yeah, you've got a lot of <laughs> to do. And that's the problem, right? And so that's, I mean, part of it is is that in the institution's mad dash to preserve itself, it snatched a bunch of us up and really kind of lied to us about the values of the church. <laughs> I feel that, yeah. You know, and like that's something that we'll deal with as we become older, as we become bishops. You know, I I always talk about Bishop Annie Edison uh, Albright because Annie's the first child of the ELCA to become a bishop. So Annie's, a lot of people don't know, her parents worked at Higgins Road when it first became Higgins Road. I didn't realize that. Cool. So her perspective, right, is, is, is someone who, is someone who was raised in this, in this church, which most people don't remember. This church is like, I got records older than this I'm church. I'm older than it. Yep. Right. I'm older than this church. I am barely older right. than it. Right. I have more, I have more life experience than the entire evangelical Lutheran church in America. But they want to act like everything they've been doing, they've been doing it since Luther farted it out. <laughs> Uh, I mean, to be fair, Lenny, I'm pretty sure you could be five years younger than this church and you would still have more life experience than the ELCA. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That might just say something about you versus the ELCA. But but you know what I mean, though. It's Mm -hmm. like weird, right? And so I got in trouble because I said that we put black rostered ministers and deacons and, well, we we changed the language so I could just say rostered ministers. Thank God they did that. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, rostered ministers, we put them, it, this is why the reparation fund makes sense. When you put black peoples only in black neighborhoods that have been systemically, economically oppressed, that means that the people in that congregation can only tithe what they can tithe, mm-hmm. which means they can only pay the pastor what they can pay the pastor, which means the pastor doesn't get any of the increases or the retirement benefits that many of our rostered ministers are going to walk into. And like, they're like, well, Lynn, I have to go on uh, Medicare too. That's welfare. I'm like, yeah, but you're not on food stamps, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the, that's the future we're leaving for black rostered ministers, right? These neighborhoods are being gentrified. The church is falling apart. Our retirement funds are a joke. I mean, GameStop, hello, <laughs> right? Like, and they're betting with our money on Wall Street. And what are we going to do for these people? You know, and, and this is all Elizabeth Eaton. 
She said this on my second fun, my second movie about do black churches matter? I asked her, I said, do black churches matter? And she said to me, of course they matter. She's like, the beauty of it is that what we're saying is you are taking care of this part of God's vineyard that we don't understand, right? And you're cultivating it for us. And that in partnership, we do that together, right? She said these words. So if I'm taking care of God's vineyard over here that is systemically oppressed, will never be able to pay me a full pay, will never be able to give me a retirement, and you will never be able to send anyone else to understand, but you're going to leave me high and dry when I'm 70? That sounds like the kingdom of God. And that's all a result of the American white supremacist system and not the ELCA. So what does the ELCA, what should it do in my opinion? Step in. Mm-hmm. supplement those incomes lift up those yeah. churches right mm-hmm. like stop investing money in harvard business plans you're calling new church designs <laughs> <laughs> it's a harvard business plan are you kidding me you're basing the church yeah. of jesus christ on a harvard business plan i haven't even tweeted that out yet i can't wait to that it's insane so yeah, it's insane. It's uh, it's insane. Yeah. But I'm a monster because I, these are the things I bring up. How dare I? So I currently serve part time in a Methodist congregation that is in a economically depressed area of, of Des Moines. And there's like pushes towards gentrification. Oh, wait, there's 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 poverty. There's poverty in, in Iowa and people are being oppressed. Oh, please tell me more. I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, please tell me. I, I really do mean tell me more, but it's just funny the assumptions we make about the Midwest. Please continue. Right, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. But so our congregation is multicultural. It's bilingual. So we worship in Spanish and English. We have a lot of like we have a food program that was started by Black Panthers and birthed from our congregation. Yeah. The only reason kids get food in school is because of the Black Panthers. Yep. Your Jimmy and Grayson get that free fucking breakfast you drop them off for, Linda, because of the Black Panthers. Yeah. Just want to put that out there. They never get credit for that. Yeah. So our congregation is not a congregation that has a lot of money, right? When you have a lot of immigrants and you're in a neighborhood where everybody at the school is on free food, free meals. We, we're limited. And so what the Methodist church has done to some degrees is to have an equalizer. So we can say, this is how many people we worship. This is the like economic situation, all of this. And then they'll send some extra money. Like we still are in relationship with wealthier congregations and have mutuality and they we just filled out a thing to get their Easter offering and all of that stuff. But the the institution of the Methodist church for all of its many faults, also is intentional about trying to balance out the income of the pastors so that those who are serving economically depressed communities can have enough or close to enough or closer to enough to be able to support their families and to support themselves. We could have done that, but the problem is in 1989, the ELCA was so desperate for the ALC contingent to stay on that they just sold out so much of who the AELC was and the LCA was for this congregational polity. I mean, that was one of the things that was on the table that no one, you know, no one wanted an an episcopate, right? But the problem is, is when you don't have like large, you know, these bishops, man, I got no power. Ugh, 
No one listens to me. Shut up already. People listen to you. You just refuse to use it already. Mm -hmm. Can you force them to do anything? No. But can you make their life really shitty if they don't do it? Oh, you've done it to me. So I know you can do it to other people. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right? And I also know that, like, you could, if you cared about something, put, put your every sermon, every pastoral letter, every video, you could pressure a synod to do whatever you really wanted. But what you do is you use the congregational polity when it's convenient. Yep. I, honestly, if we just had one-term bishops, it would solve all this. Just like the, uh, just like the Presbyterians do, your co-moderator once and you're done. Then you're moderator and you're done. That's, that's what we need to do. We need, it needs to be one term bishops across the entire ELCA. You got six years to figure it out, buddy. Mm. Right. And that's it. Right. That, that, that's it. That's it. You got six years. Don't worry about getting reelected. No one's reelecting your ass. And then what does it do? No yeah. one can. Right. Whereas the, right. it like, creates more space for freedom when you're not dependent on pleasing enough people yep. to get reelected. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Less about capitalism and more about the kingdom. Yeah. Yep. So I mean that I mean that's part of it too, man. We just our our entire leadership system is so screwed up that these these you know they're like oh well you know every church gets to decide for itself what it wants to do except if that church tries to leave us then we get the building or if they want to pick a minister because then we're in charge of that and if they want to change anything constitutionally they have to come see us but I swear to God everything else the congregations are in charge yeah okay. I talk about it as in the merger, we took like between the ALC and the LCA, we took very much a top down model and a bottom up model and smushed them together and got the worst of both worlds. Like it's, mm -hmm. yeah. there was no intentionality, no like thought about the logistics of it. And it means that everybody at every level has plausible deniability because congregations can say, well, the synod or the bishop and bishops can say, well, the congregations or the denomination, nobody has and to And for to. those of our listeners who aren't in the ELCA, I would say that these are definitely also issues that all major denominations and smaller denominations face. And given that the Methodist Church is actually about to crack in half in this country. Three. Three. Crack in three. Uh, yeah. Oh, gracious. Really? I, three, I heard about three, one. But three is okay. my prediction. But that's been my prediction from the beginning. The moderates, the super radicals, and then the people who are going to try and consolidate all the, the world Methodism that they can grab. So they're going to focus on right. the global South and consolidate their power in evangelicalism there. I wouldn't, is be, my I wouldn't be surprised. They just put off for another year the generals. I don't remember if they call it the General Assembly or what, but yeah. But, yeah. but I understand the conservative faction has officially put in the paperwork to start their own denomination okay. right now. So, well, according to a Methodist friend. Yeah, the the wheels are in motion, mm -hmm. and they came close to a deal already once. Yeah, right. So they already had a deal for two. I think they're going to end up in three, I think is what we're going to find. Be but I'm not Methodist, and I'm not paying that much attention, so it's very easy for me to be wrong. I only kind of pay attention. Our first reading for this Sunday is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and is received by a cheering crowd. But we know that in a few days, another crowd will cheer at his death. So one of the themes that we already talked about some in the deep dive that came up for me in this was the street theater of it, the making fun of it and of Pilate yes. coming into Jerusalem from the other direction. And I, I'm sure that other like areas 
of fiction and stuff have this, but the one that always comes to mind for me is the Weasley twins during Chamber of Secrets marching in front of Harry down the hallways and and proclaiming, like, make way for the heir of Slytherin, really bad guy coming through as this, like, and for Harry, it's this encouraging thing because it makes a joke of this thing that he's terrified of and that everybody is accusing him of and that is not true. But it's just this like way of completely sapping all of the power and fear that was in this accusation of Heir of Slytherin from everybody. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. For me, it's that scene where a Hawkeye sitting up, they're inside a S.H.I.E.L.D. facility and Iron Man walks in. He's like, there he is, everyone. The futurist. He knows yeah. all. He sees all. <laughs> right? That's sort of what I feel like Jesus is doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, the church hasn't always encouraged Bible fan fiction, but if we're going to write Bible fan fiction, I really do want the version. I would love either the version where Jesus has access to Harry Potter style magic, <laughs> because that would be awesome. Yeah. Or. The one where Jesus has to deal with all of these sarcastic superheroes. Oh, I mean, Hawkeye is Jesus. I, I, I really think Hawkeye out of all the Avengers has to be Jesus. I mean, we sent him out there with a bow and arrow set. The whole world ended. He lost his family. And he was like, oh, I'll just go murder Yakuza for a couple of years. That's cool. Like, I mean, that I, I, you know, that I love Hawkeye's character. I love him in the comics more because he's a drunk loser. Yes. He's a drunk, single, divorced, depressed, depressed. Yeah. He just drinks coffee and talks to his dog. He's starting to go blind, which is really interesting. Which is like an interesting thing is that the guy, this guy who could never miss, is starting not to be able to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like all these. Yeah, I really like the character. Sorry. Yeah. No, Hawkeye is. Matt Fraction was the comic artist who did the recent reboot, and that was really good. Oh, the reboot was fantastic. And, like, I mean, Hawkeye was a former criminal who worked for the circus? I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, then becomes a hero? I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's every kid's dream. Run away to the circus, become a criminal, and then take all those skills and become a superhero? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd want to take some elephants with me, but yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not sure they would like that life. I'd make it... Elephants are a surprisingly peace-loving That's fair. I, That's yeah, fair. I think a beholder would be a better pet to carry with you, but... <laughs> Colorado. Where'd you grow up in Colorado? Alamosa or something? Vail. Vail? Did you really grow up in Vail? But... That's funny, though. Like, I know so many people up there. Did you live up there when the Greenpeace people burned down, tried to burn down your city? When they burned to... Hell yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which is, like, the only reason that, like, then the project went through. Yeah. Because everybody... It was... It was was controversial until everybody got... Until they burned it down, and then everybody's like, oh, we gotta rebuild. Well, but the other part of that is, is that those people in the 90s who were doing shit like that, people who were, like, sabotaging loggers' equipment, they seem a lot less crazy now, don't they? Like, at the (laughs) time, you were like, dude, you're really extreme, but now you're like... Can you guys do more of that? (laughs) Can you slow these guys down just a little bit? Don't hurt anyone, but can you... uh... Would you be interested in leading a workshop? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's where churches are now. They're like, would you be interested in leading a workshop in uh, in tear gas? That's the kind of invites I get now. I'm like, yeah, sure. We're a workshop. Held out, wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
as we dive into the verses in this passage, in verse 3, we read that Jesus' instructions to the disciples is, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. And it really sounds like the response, any response in Doctor Who, where like they're going to do something in this new place and nobody knows who the doctor is. And it's like, why do you need this? The doctor needs it. Don't worry. And they're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why he calls himself the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Never petty nor cruel. Right. Right. What's the doctor's credo? Why he took the name? Never, Never petty nor cruel. Why she took the name. Never petty nor cruel. I'm not on this doctor. Yeah, I haven't caught oh, up. Man. I, but soon. I lost my Doctor Who access for a little while, so I have not caught up yet. Oh, well, I won't blow any of it, but this is from uh, Matt Smith when he did The Day of the Doctor. Mm. Eccleston had a few moments like that, too. Yeah, it's it's really good. Just it throw out a, a sarcastic quip and they'll let you do mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, no, that totally reminds me of like the way the companions are able to you know do whatever. But also we know that the... The price that the doctor pays for his adventures are the companions. So what's that say about Peter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they did all die the same kind of death Jesus did. So except one, maybe. Yeah. So that's kind of fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like the deal, right? Like the the companions are always ripped to shreds. I mean, if you think what they did to Jesus is bad this week, what do I tell you what they did to the upper management after they got rid of him? Right? Like. It's bad. Yeah. Yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, which one's Amy Pond? Oh goodness. I so <laughs> which disciples Amy Pond? Oh my gosh. How about Rory and Amy are the sons of Zebedee? There we go. Sons of Thunder. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right because that's how they were, right? Like especially Rory once he realized how big the thing was, his character was like, "Well, where do I fit in this?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm. That's a good one. We should sometime. Maybe we'll have you on again, and we'll just go through the disciples and like figure out who everybody <laughs> is. Who everyone is? That'll yeah. be fun. That's fantastic. A special extra episode, for sure. In verse 11, we read, Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I have to say, this verse doesn't really seem to fit with the rest of the passage. I, it just sounds odd to me that Jesus just gets to the temple and then looks around. Mm-hmm. He doesn't pray. He doesn't worship. He doesn't make an offering. Though I suppose him making an offering of all people would be pretty superfl- superfl- superfluous. Yes, that. Thank you. I just can't talk today. That's fair. Would would be a little over the top. It makes him sound like a tourist. It, he gets there and he looks around and then he leaves. It, did he take pictures? It, was he getting ready for his Instagram? Was he wearing a Hawaiian shirt with a camera? I don't know. He in a Hawaiian shirt. I, I mean, if we're going to picture Jesus as ourselves, then I want the Jesus with the Hawaiian shirt. That seems totally reasonable. Yes. Now I'm imagining Jesus as Twoflower, the Discworld tourist and insurance salesman who's on vacation in the big city of Ankhmore Pork. And Terry Pratchett was absolutely just as or even more fond of using language to his advantage as Jesus was. So I can only imagine how witty and pointed Jesus as written by Pratchett would be. I would love that Bible fanfic, too. Uh, If you haven't tried Discworld and you love sarcastic and pointed language and a whole boatload of puns used for satire uh, to punch up, I owe. Why has nobody introduced Discworld to me in that context? I have, like three times. Not with the puns. Yeah. 
You never mentioned I, the puns. The puns put it over the top. The puns put it over the top <laughs> for them. Yeah. 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 The puns will do it every time. Yeah. I think in this particular account of Palm Sunday is the most pointed one where it's so very clear that Jesus is really just there for the processional. He's just there to go into Jerusalem. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, now I'm here. Let's go back. Well, I need a nap. Yeah. Or like you show up to the party and you're like, look at this. Let's get out of here. <laughs> like it could be like he threw this great party in the streets and he gets into the temple and expects to be greeted. Or what we're really seeing is that instead of the people, instead of the high priests welcoming Jesus, like they're supposed to be welcoming the Messiah, welcoming the living embodiment of God into the temple. What they're really doing is welcoming the state on the other side of the city. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be like that moment of being like, but I like to think of it as like he was partying down the street and he, you know, you finally get into the party and you go, like, those parties sucks. Let's get out of here. Yeah. You just know that Pilate would have milked every second with the higher ups at his parade that was humanly possible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He would have made it last as long as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He had made everyone stand there at attention. Not that Lutherans have ever done that. Yeah. No. Pomp? Circumstance? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. As we shift from the Palm Procession and the story of Palm Sunday towards the Passion and the rest of Holy Week, our first reading for that part is from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9a. One of Isaiah's servant songs describing God's servant who responds to enemies not with violence, but by focusing on the love of God. One of the most obvious themes in all of the servant songs in Isaiah is suffering, right? There is this pretty in-depth description of the suffering of the servant. And I was thinking about like all of the dystopias, right? At some point, there's just immense amounts of suffering. That's literally why they're dystopias. And I think the Hunger Games is, and I was like, oh, it happens in all of them from the start. And then I was like, actually, no, because a lot of them, start out depicted as some version of a utopia or some version of idealization and then the cracks are are discovered but hunger games is one of the few that from the beginning it is very obvious that everyone is suffering and that this suffering is widespread with so many different people and not for like a good reason and i think that's part of the way that we think about suffering And the way that this passage in particular can be used harmfully is when we say, oh, see, suffering always has a purpose. If you're suffering, it's part of God's will. It's what God wants for you. And that's not what this says. And that's really bad and harmful theology for people who are in particularly abusive relationships. But suffering doesn't always have a purpose. No. I think that's a really interesting point is that like so many people think that like the suffering of the people of Israel was part of the salvation story when maybe just the suffering, you know, was the suffering of, of the Jewish people is just what it is. It's human suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's been a continued plague of human suffering against those people. And um, the ability to just understand suffering for what it is and allow suffering just to be and be a servant in the midst of that is different than suffering with a purpose, right? I do believe to follow Christ is to suffer, but I don't think that that's because of Christ or God. I think that's because of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's very that's a very different thing, right? Like, you know, you can't just declare that you want to love everyone and treat everyone equally in this world. That has consequences. Yeah, yeah. 
and the suffering comes from other humans. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, consistently, right? But yeah, I also think it's because people are we don't give them the tools to do anything else. Yeah. You know, we we really don't. We don't give them ways to like you know. Not by we, I mean society. We don't give people ways to like really look beyond it, right? And and also, I think that like a lot of the human suffering doesn't come from human people. It comes from human systems, and I think there's a difference. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. I think when we, I think the scary thing about oppressive institutions is once you get up close to them, you realize they're chock full of good people. Yeah. And that's the hard thing to really wrestle with. You know what I mean? Those are sort of like suffering servants to me. Mm. I think Jesus was someone who was trying to serve under a very oppressive system. For sure. And he knew there were going to be consequences for it. Mm. And I think that I think that idea though, and that understanding that oppressive institutions are still filled with like good people is important and it's it's hard because that's the pushback right I have heard that particularly in the ELCA of like when something's pointed out as an injustice the response is oh I'm sure it wasn't intended that way oh I'm sure they had the best of intentions and it's like oh sure but the impact right is not the intentions yeah Right. And, and, and that's the thing, right? Like, hey, look, we all wrestle with intention versus impact. I wrestle with it in my personal life all the time. But, you know, the flip side of that is, is that also, like, it's not the people, you know, it's the systems. And when we focus on the systems and dismantling the way that the systems interact with us and, and with the people, it puts us in a better place, right? And it allows us to make better decisions. It doesn't put us in the position of Caiaphas where we only have bad decisions to make because these are the only tools that are before us. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if Caiaphas had a family who really needed the health insurance policy provided by his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had that conversation last summer. So last summer when I was I was arrested during one of the protests and we're like sitting there with the like police officers who run the jail while we're like waiting for hours to be let out because the system was down and they're like talking about how like but there are good guys too and I was like yeah and there's the the whole dynamic of like the good guys still like make the institution function but then somebody was like I have to support my family and provide health insurance I spent four months last year without health insurance yeah you do but like maybe that's why you should be working for medicare for all instead of being like supporting this institute right there's so much that just like because of the way our capitalist system is set up people can't take risks people people don't feel like they can take risks or be bold because their health insurance is tied to their job and there's no guarantees that without their job they won't be evicted and then they be and we don't support people in retaining housing and we don't yeah, it's it's a whole it's a whole series of things, right? I mean, the policing exists for the, the the sole purpose of the fact that we don't want to get to know our neighbors, right? I don't want to know why you're homeless. I don't want to know why you're beating your partner. I don't want to know why you're selling drugs out of the house. I don't want to even know your name. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call an armed concierge service to do that for me. And typically, these guys are not well trained. They've only got six weeks training, and most of them have PTSD from the war. And I'm going to slap a gun on their side and send them out there to take care of this thing that I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's the covenant we made with America. So we put the police in bad positions. We put the people of color in, in bad positions. And then we wonder why it explodes every couple of months. And it's mostly because we don't want to love neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. Or we are 
tied to the idea that we want to love our neighbor, but we have to do it on an individual basis instead of a systemic basis. Yeah. Because for some reason, the government being used to love our neighbor would be wrong. Absolutely. I still haven't figured yeah. that part out. Yeah. But I've had that conversation way too many times. So this is another one of those passages where Emily and I both jumped at the same verse, but I like to think of that as being that we both have good taste. Mm. Right? Yeah, so, that's it. <laughs> in verse 8, we hear the servant say, Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. And this is a very try me, see what happens kind of line. Lots of superheroes have had moments like this. Uh, but the first one that I think of is Tony Stark in the third Iron Man movie, using the paparazzi to call out the Mandarin. Uh, and my favorite part is when he gives his home address, because if the Mandarin is at all competent, you would think that they would have that already. <laughs> but he's just, you know, no, seriously, show up. Let's see what happens. Uh, and so he gives out his home address, which, of course, all the paparazzi also already know. I love yeah. that bit. Yeah. I was thinking about it in a slightly different version of the, like, come at me kind of thing with the doctor in in the episode where the Pandorica opens, where, like, there's this alliance of all of the enemies. This is in Matt Smith, which is my first doctor. But all of the enemies of the doctor form the alliance. And they, like, set this trap with the Pandorica so that when the doctor shows up, they'll, like, get him trapped in the Pandorica for forever and then he'll be taken care of and he won't like completely destroy all of time and space. And what ends up happening is the doctor's like, nah, come at me. Like I've destroyed and defeated you and I've destroyed it. Like I've defeated you and I've defeated you in all of these ways. So who's going to be the first one? Why don't you just let somebody else be the first one to take me on? And ultimately like the, there are like, fake Roman centurion people among them, Rory Pond, who like actually come at the doctor, but it's this thing. And that like, everybody just like stops. Cause they're like, I don't want to be the first one. I don't want to be the Like somebody else can go first. <laughs> I'm not going to take that on. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love that Pandorica series or even, even how it starts with um, the first episode where they introduce Matt Smith and he stands up there and he introduces himself and he puts on the bow tie and he's on the roof and he says, and he says, I'm the doctor. You know, and he's like, this world's under my protection. And he starts flashing all the scenes of all the faces of the doctor mm -hmm. over the years mm -hmm. and all the things that he's done to defeat different enemies. And he's like, and then, and then he turns it off and he's like, so any questions? He just drops it in there and they just take off. <laughs> They're like, we're out of here. You know, yeah. like, yeah, that's like a come at me, bro moment, you know, from that universe. I, I think the come at me, bro moment for uh, me um, in the Marvel universe it's a uh, iron man versus it's civil war iron man versus captain america and uh he fights him he's like i could do this all day right like like you know like iron man uses all those <laughs> uses all those weapons against him and basically like unloads his entire arsenal and like cap just gets up wipes off the blood and he's like i could do this all day <laughs> you know and then later on it comes back in infinity war when they're trying to get the stones and he, and he fights, you know, he fights cap from the past and the cat from the past hops up and says, I can do this all day. And he's like, I know, I know, I know you can do this all day. <laughs> 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 like he gets a taste of his own medicine, you know, and he's like, Oh God. He's like, is that what I'm like? You know, then he knocks himself <laughs> out and he's like, that is America's ass as he walks away. <laughs> 
but yeah, that scene with uh, but that original scene in Civil War where he's like talking with with uh, Tony Stark, he's like, I could do this all day. <laughs> That's a come at me, bro moment because he clearly can't in that moment. He's about to pass out. But that's Steve Rogers for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's Steve yeah. Rogers, right? That's what makes, makes him one of the most annoying and captivating characters in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. He was better as Commander Rogers, but then they did all that weird Hydra stuff. In the comics, when he was, like, older and he was just, like, the guy, he was, like, the new Nick Fury. Mm. That was a cool, that was a cool arc for him. And then, you know, they screwed it up. Marvel, they're always screwing things up in the comics and getting it right in the movies. They're like, we're going to screw it up 30 times in the comics so we can get it right once in the movies, which I respect, kind of. Yeah, and that's some of the beauty of the comics is that you can do, you can just splinter and do all of the different ways of doing it and then see what lands. Oh, man, the new X-Men series, what they've become on Krakoa is absolutely amazing. It is the queer, beloved community we've been searching for. I'll have to check it out because I know, like, I got into X-Men through the original movie trilogy and loved it and still love it. Okay. <laughs> Our next reading for this episode is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Jesus Christ's defining characteristic is not his power, but what he was willing to give up in the name of love for us. Everything, including his life. One of the themes for this passage for me was the role reversal, right? We talk about, and you mentioned that, Kay, in the, like, what Jesus is willing to give up. But to go from all that is and, right, like, God and creation and all that to say, like, nope, I'm giving it all up. It reminded me of The Prince and the Pauper, which I mostly know mm. from the Wishbone series because I grew <laughs> up with Wishbone as a kid. And so there's, like, Wishbone the dog plays the main character in all of these different like literary things so i was thinking about the prince and the pauper or for like recent netflix christmas movies the princess switch where they just like switch places but it's this flip of for the princess switch movie things it's like the princess and a baker who's there for a contest or the prince and the pauper where it's like just a huge economic like class flip oh, and in those it's mm. like i think your thing is better than my thing and it's kind of true and kind of not and that's i don't know like i think it would be interesting to think about if god was like you know i wonder if it's like more fun to be human than to be god i want to try it oh it was definitely a case of 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 a piece of the divinity running away from responsibility for a little bit Right. It wanted to I, I believe that the divine wanted to know that and wanted to know what it was like from our perspective, like in a real way. I believe that Christ was very limited. I don't believe what a cheat. Right. Like it's not a video game. Christ didn't have like the cheat codes. Right. Like so like he was like, I know I'm going to die on this cross, but everything's going to be cool. No, he didn't know that. He had literal no idea. God mode. Yeah. Like like, yeah, literal God. Mode. Like like he literally he didn't know. He was terrified as they did each act to him. Mm-hmm. I think that gives Christ so much more power mm-hmm. of not knowing and even at the last moment doubting. I mean, he had a moment of doubt on the cross, but okay. We, we all pretend yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah. Right? Where he's like, wow, I'm forsaken. Wow. I'm forsaken. Wow. In our last episode, we talked about Oscar Romero and the Bible verse that connected. And the quote was like the idea of being a seed has to fall to the ground and then from that is growth and the first time i you connected that to zombies not quite no 
Okay, so we're not the horror version. That's of this a different podcast. podcast. So the there other, is other Romero podcast that does that. So the other Romero. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking to theologian Romero. Yeah, the Archbishop. Not the zombie yes. director, Night of the Living Dead Romero. Yeah, the the, the other one. I just wanted because because you said because you said the seeds drop to the ground and they rise up. I was like, holy. Shit. Zombies, yeah. Let's talk about zombie <laughs> Jesus. That's fair. There will be another podcast that will yep. do that. Horror nerds at church. There's going to be a yep with horror spoilers mm. for our Easter yep. season. That's not us. Ah, we're gonna like have an episode with them, but eat my flesh. Da, 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 we're getting a spinoff. Yeah. Eat of my flesh. <laughs> we're just gonna have like Lenny be the metal <laughs> metal nerd at church. Yeah, that's what it is, though. It's such a weird story, isn't it? Eat my flesh. <laughs> yeah. I've risen from the dead. I have power. It's also going to be a really cool story about a necromancer, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the, the connection, though, that we made was the, like, everybody who's, maybe not everybody, but the majority of people who are assassinated know that it's coming. They don't know what's coming next, but, mm. like, they can see, right? Archbishop Oscar Romero knew he was going to be killed. MLK knew he was going to be killed. Jesus knew he was going to be killed. And just because they know that they're going to be killed, just because they know that that act of martyrdom, that act of death and assassination has the potential to give birth to new life and new power for the movement, doesn't mean that, like, Jesus knows, okay, see you in three days. Right, right. right. (laughs) Just Just because Fred Hampton knew that, like he taught people that you could murder a revolutionary, but not the revolution doesn't mean that Fred knew we'd still be talking about him. He was 21, yeah. 24. Yeah. He was like a kid, man. That kid didn't know if we would still be talking about him to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm. For the passage itself, I was talking to River, who's a friend of the podcast and who was on it in Epiphany about this passage and I was reading it aloud as I was prepping for it and I literally got like the first verse and then immediately she was like stop so the first verse is let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus and I was just going to like read through the whole thing and River who never interrupts interrupted me and was like the ood I was like yes right the ood and doctor who have collective and personal minds and so there is this like letting the same mind having the same mind be in them and they they think we should really use them as a parallel for the church more often or the guardians of the wormhole in bajor like how they experience their world oh yeah right no timeline at all right but like you can have individual experience or collective experience and that that pointed to what the changelings would be like on the other side like, isn't that weird? Like how they had like a spiritual version of this physical enemy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from a galaxy That's away. Star Trek Deep Space Nine for those who haven't watched Thanks, it. Thanks. Yeah. I was like, I'm not sure I remember that from Doctor Who. That makes more sense. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's all DS9. I'm sorry. I just assume everyone talks about our only black commander so far, except for we got another black commander who eventually is going to become a, a captain. There have been more they commanders than there have been. I mean, captains than there have been black captains in Star Trek. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing to think about. There are there have been more genderless species and beings and people, right? Mm-hmm. Right on Star Trek leading ships, and there have been black. Yeah, it's like the opposite that you experience in a lot of other. Because now D and D and everyone's rushing to make everyone. Yeah, you know, elves were black too. Well, yeah, 
they, they, they live below the southern equator, so we, we're just going to assume genetically they'd be warmer than you. They develop melatonin. That's sort of how science works. But I guess in your weird magic world, only white people exist. Cool. Yep. Super cool. Well, and if they actually start drawing D&D maps to line up with how geography and like climatology and uh, geology all work, then the universe may come to an end. So. Yep. That's how it would all end. Yeah. Yeah. For verses 10 and 11 in this passage, we hear, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So when you're thinking about what this would look like, think less Loki in the first Avengers movie making the crowd in Germany kneel. That's not what we're going for. And more like the crowd cheering at T'Challa winning his first challenge for the crown and being declared king in Black Panther. Mm. Like, that's really more towards, you know, it's joyous. It's not being oppressed. I, I, yeah, I got to tell you, I went out to Lent, one of the, out the desert for Lent to kick it off for like the first week. And one of the weird things I did is I went and I, I sparred with my friend with like real life swords for like days. And, you know, and, and, you know, it was how we get together when we don't see each other for a lot of years, right? We, we go out there and, and neither of us are terribly aggressive people, but it's a, it's a skill we both have that we like to keep sharp with each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's how it felt. It felt like, you know, I was being welcomed in an old teacher's house on his land. You know what I mean? And what do you do when you show up in an old teacher's house? You challenge them to a couple of rounds and, you laugh and you, you listen to music and you have a feast and yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I definitely see the inauguration of the kingdom more like that than like Loki, like this is, this, cause that's how the evangelicals want it. This is where you belong on your knees. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Willingly worshiping that kind of God makes me nervous. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Those people. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was really, it was really good for me. I mean, this was my first spiritual teacher. Uh, he's in my new book, United States of Grace. Um, Jim, I only, I paint people I know personally very opaque in my book. He gets one line. One line for me in my book means that you probably spent decades with me. And because I don't have the right to tell other people's stories without their permission. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, it was good to go on his land and I'm going through some changes. So it was a good time to do it. So as we begin the passion narrative that will take us into Holy Week, we read from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. As the story of Christ's death in the Gospel of Mark begins, an unnamed woman anoints Jesus with costly ointment before preparations are made for what becomes Jesus' last supper, where Jesus is clear about his upcoming betrayal. So I was thinking about this and the that space of burial and death preparation and what we do to honor mm. people who are going to die and after they've died and the ointment. I was trying to find like other things with ointment and then what actually stuck out to me was Katniss after Rue is killed in the hunger in the first Hunger Games book. Katniss gathers all of these flowers and spreads them out and makes just this beautiful image of Rue as if she is just sleeping in the Mm. midst of, right, this game that is literally about killing every other person here. There's this, like, moment of beauty and care for Rue as she died. Mm. Yeah. That is one of my favorite moments from that series. I liked Rue. 
And then the long-term consequences in the series, right? Because then everyone sees her being a caring person. She becomes a leader because of that, right? And it's the consequences of just doing a kind act, right? We don't know how far that stuff can yeah. go in the world. And the ways that it sparks resistance, right? Like, it's it's a kind act in the face of cruelty. That is, like, the. it's not just a kind act when everything is fine, but a kind act in the face of cruelty that... That really counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to go against something that Lenny said earlier, or perhaps to just offer a different perspective on it, when we get to verse 13, we see Jesus predicts where the disciples will find a place to celebrate the Passover. And Lenny earlier was commenting that, you know, Jesus didn't necessarily know that this is where they're going to go, that this is going to work, which is totally fair. But as a narrative storytelling method, uh, we can also see this as this part of the story sets us up to know mm. that the prediction that he's going to make next in a few verses about the betrayal of one of the disciples will also be true. This one worked out, so that one will probably also work out. Uh, which made me think of of Good Omens, uh, both the book and the miniseries. When we meet Agnes Nutter for the first time, we see her prediction of her own death come true. And that tells us that we can expect the rest of her predictions uh, to also be nice and accurate, well, as the book says. And that's how Zen masters, right? Isn't that how they so show that they're Zen masters? They predict their own death, like in some Zen teaching circles, like Tanzan. He teaches, you know, like you're supposed to write this final statement and release it right before your death because you're supposed to know that you're going to die. And Tanzan's final statement was like the date, the time. He's like, "This is Tanzan. This is my final statement," and he sealed it up. <laughs> That was the whole wow. thing. <laughs> so that way you knew the rest of his teachings were powerful. Sure. Same kind of deal. Yeah, I'm not sure that's knowledge I would want to have. I don't. Knowing when, how, uh, in Ifa, in African uh, traditional religion, that's actually one of the more powerful things you can get. It's called your Ayakofa ceremony mm-hmm. or your hand of Arumula. And it gives you a sketching of how you are destined to live and die on this planet. I think there'd be a freedom in it Some and people, a, like, terror for me. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, well, I'm just saying there's a lot of spiritual practices that really embrace it. Yeah. No, it's not the death part that worries me. It's the dying part. Yeah. Death doesn't concern me that much. Dying can be wildly unpleasant. Yeah. That's what I hear. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is never depicted accurately in any movie or anything like that. Just for the record, people never, never die that way. If you ever watch a movie or a nope. TV show with me and somebody is dying, I will point out... That's not how the last breath happens. Takes nope. a lot longer. A lot. Nope. No. But it takes a lot longer, and and it's a lot grosser. And even when it's peaceful, it's, it's gross. Yeah. yeah. In verse twenty, when we get to the point where Jesus says to the disciples, "It is the one of the, he's talking about who's gonna betray him," and he says, "It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the bowl with me." Dipping bread into the bowl sounds a lot more pleasant and tasty than fish sticks into custard as Matt Smith discovers he loves, as the Matt Smith doctor <laughs> discovers he loves. Mm-hmm. I'm more partial to his bow ties are cool than his fish sticks and custard. I do kind of wonder if that was just a new a new regeneration thing, like he was still getting used to his taste buds, or did he con- continue no, I think to he love continued fish to sticks love and it. custard? Yeah, he, he did have them a couple episodes later, and then later on in another oh, okay. season, yeah. But that was the face he was using to flirt, not with Amy Pond, but with the next companion. Mm-hmm. Right. So she would help him do the hard things on the fields of Trenzalore. Yeah. 
Well, Pastor Lenny, do you have any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? Well, I wore my robe to your podcast and carried my towel. <laughs> Because I'm because I'm I'm 42 years old and that's it. Carry your towel. the The world's about <laughs> to get a, about to become a strange place. You know, if you don't have a copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'll just give you the main message from it. Don't panic. Yay! Absolutely. Don't panic. The world, the universe is a strange place. The galaxy is a strange place, and I think we've got some strange days ahead of us. But they're exciting days, and I truly believe that. And I really believe that. Uh. I truly believe this republic is on the precipice of something good for the first time in a long time. And it's got nothing to do with our leaders or elections and so much more with what I'm hearing from the people. Yeah. That's it. Carry your towel. Yeah. Don't panic. I think that is good Thank advice. Thank you so much. The body of Christ that is not necessarily the institutional church as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We are. We're definitely the hitchhikers in the ecclesiastical galaxy. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just say, and you can check out more about this in Lenny's upcoming book, United States of Grace, which is coming out in May. Yeah, May 18th. Oh, I'm supposed to sell my book now. I had so much fun. <laughs> I was just going to leave without doing that. Like the whole reason people do podcasts, right? To sell their junk at the end. This is how you know. You can also have fun. That's okay. Yeah, well, it's allowed. This is how you know I'm the anti-fascist, anti-thought leader, thought leader, right? Like I just hate that stuff. Yeah, man, I totally forgot to tell you my book. Yeah, I got a book coming out in two months. It's actually a big deal. It's called United States of Grace. You can check out everything at UnitedStatesOfGrace.com. It's my memoir, but, like, that's lame to say because it's really not. What it really is is a defense of the republic from the position of someone who's never had the rights or the privileges of a citizen. And I take the seven most traumatic things that ever happened to me, and I use them as a jumping off place to talk about how much hope, mercy, and grace there is in the world. Yeah, sure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for Maundy Thursday. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that, though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christians said, Pax Vobiscum.